All right, Rick, calm down. You've done this a thousand times. That's true, but you did just start working here seven days ago. You can't fire me after seven days, though, right? That'd be nuts. Relax, relax, relax. You're fine. Oh, wow. They carry my podium out for me here? Talk about making a fellow feel special. I wonder if Ben will let me sing next week. Let me make a quick note and talk to him about that in the office this week. Man, this room is massive. Look how tall these ceilings are. Don't worry about it. You're not preaching to the room. You're preaching to the people. People? Wow, there's a bunch of them. Don't think about that either. Clothes. Let's check the outfit. Buttons? Done. Zipper? Way to be. Okay, they love Philip. Think be like Philip. Dang it, I can't even grow a goatee. I wonder if preaching works like fighting your dad and you never win. You're fine. At least you're taller than him. Maybe I should preach a really short one and get people out of here really early for food. Bribe them into liking you. Okay, okay, Rick, you're good. Your jokes are funny, your stories are relatable, and dadgummit people like you. Let's do this. Don't puke, don't puke, don't puke, don't puke, don't puke. Just don't trip. Well, thank you. Good morning, Cedar Creek. Thank you so much. First off, um, let me say again, thank you. I really, uh, since we made that video, uh, I've had this deep, like, seated fear that nobody would laugh at the jokes. And then I started playing through my head how awkwardly long that walk was going to be to hear if nobody laughed at anything. So thank you guys for laughing uh, at the jokes and getting out to a good start. I am so incredibly excited to be back here at Cedar Creek. I, I feel like I am back home. Uh, I feel like I am back at my home. Yeah, thank you. Uh, back at a church where the mission and vision has is, is literally been woven into our DNA from the time that I was a small child, and I could not be more excited to be here. But this morning uh, has been a bit of a lesson for me in terms of be careful what you ask for uh, as this whole process has started. So um, a few months ago, Danny called me and said, hey, Rick, we have a position that's come open as the adult ministries director at our Banks Mill campus. Uh, and the Lord has pressed your name into my heart for somebody that may fit what we're looking for in that position. And he said, would you just begin to pray through that and see if maybe that's um, the, the, the direction that the Lord leads you. And so I started to pray and I started to seek counsel from pastors and people that I trust and have poured into my life. And I said, man, I've never really been a part of this process. I don't know what to do. I don't have a clear direction of how am I going to walk through this? What is the process? What do I need to do? And so the wisest counsel that I got is make sure that you ask the questions that are important to you, even as they're asking questions of you in an interview process. So I said, okay. And so I did that, and some of them were, you know, practical stuff about moving and logistics and that kind of stuff. But this part of my job, getting to preach and teach, is my favorite aspect of being in, in pastoral ministry. I love to be up here. I love to read, and I love to teach God's Word. And so it excites me. It fills me with joy. It revs me up, and I'm excited to get to do it whenever I do it. And so I asked the question in the interview process. I said, Danny, I want to make sure before I accept this position that everything you're asking me to do as the adult ministries director sounds exciting and sounds like something, man, I can get behind. And I believe in it. I believe in small groups. I believe in home groups. I believe in discipleship. I believe in all of that stuff. But I want to make sure that my dad is going to share the pulpit. And so I said, I want to make sure that there's going to be an opportunity for me to get to do what fills me up in terms of my job and that kind of stuff. He said, 
absolutely. He said, we want you to do that. And he said, I want help in that area, so we would love to have you on. So I kept praying, and God led me to accepting this position, and I couldn't be more exciting. And then after I'd accepted the position and we began to kind of work through it, Danny called me, and he said, hey, man. I said, hey, what's up? He said, I know you were talking about wanting to preach. I said, yeah, I love to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm 100% behind that. And he said, how do you feel about preaching your second week at the church? I said, uh, okay, all right, uh, sure, yeah, man, I, I, I'm, I'm in. I, Rick, you asked for this. You can't go, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. So I said, okay, cool, yeah, I will do that. And so I was like, okay, it won't be that bad. I was like, surely they'll be in a series They'll be working through a book of the Bible. It'll be something that's kind of clear, and you just kind of add your own personal flair to it and rock and roll, and you'll be good to go. And I said, sure, just help me with this, Danny. What do you want me to preach? What do you want me to preach on? What series are we in? And he said, well, that's the great news is we're in between series. And so you can preach on whatever you want. And I was like, this feels dangerous for everybody involved. (laughs) in this little scenario that we've got set up here. And so I started to pray, and I went, okay, God, I have, I have no idea. Uh, coming out of student ministry, I've gotten to speak to adults and do that kind of stuff, but I have no idea. We're rocking into a new year. We're not a part of a series. God, what is it that you want me to communicate? And I don't know if you've ever been around our entire family, but I would describe our family pretty accurately in two words, fast and loud. Um, And so I try to get God to communicate with me in that method. Like, God, here's what I need you to do. Just have the Holy Spirit yell at me. Just let him scream. I can take it. I'm thick-skinned, and I'll do whatever it is that you ask me to do. So I kept kept praying, and I kept seeking, and I kept doing those things, and, and God wasn't really making it clear where he wanted me to go. But this idea kept getting pressed into my head as I kept praying and seeking. And it was the Holy Spirit in that quiet voice that, again, I wish was much louder than it is, saying, be quiet. Rick, you're, you can't hear because you're worried about what, job, what the job looks like, what it doesn't look like, what house you're going to live in, selling your house over here, getting moved in, where Piper's going to be, where Misty's going to be, keeping all these plates spinning. Be quiet, and I'll communicate. And so I started, and I'm not always great at this, I started trying to be obedient to that, to set aside time each day to go, okay, God, what is it? What is it? And I've tried literally all the way up till yesterday, I'm sitting on a computer at my parents' house typing on this outline. And the Holy Spirit pressed into my heart. There's been a few moments in my life that have been seemingly, at, at least at first glance, insignificant, that have been packed in my faith journey like nothing else that's happened to me. A few years ago, uh, I completed my master's degree in seminary. And there was a moment that happened in one of the first classes that I was enrolled in, biblical hermeneutics, which is just the practice of being able to read and interpret scripture. And the professor of that class said something on th- uh, syllabus day. And anybody who's been to college knows what syllabus day is. It's the first day of class. There's no point in going. If you're, if you're not in college yet, go to class. But... They just go over the syllabus and tell you what you're going to do for the whole semester and that kind of stuff, and you can read it online on your own. So we're doing that. And my professor goes through the syllabus and gets to the end of it, and then he steps back and he makes this statement. For some of you, this class and your next two to four years in seminary are going to be useless. I said, what? This, This doesn't feel like the speech to get people to buy into the importance of the course you're teaching. 
for some of you, let me step back and say it again, for some of you, this course and your entire time in student ministry is going to be useless. He stepped back from his podium and he said this, over the next two to four years, you are going to study and study and study and study Scripture. And you are going to get an understanding of Scripture that will be rivaled by very few in the modern world. And then he said this, but if your understanding of Scripture doesn't change the level of affection that you feel for the God that the Bible is about, it's useless. It's just information, and you can win a Bible trivia competition. And so I sat in that class, and I've, and I've been weighted by that statement and praying because I love to study God's Word. I'm one of those weird kind of nerdy guys that loves to read old dead theologians' papers, and I love to sit in there and try to figure out, what does this mean? How do I understand this? And the conviction that I've had since this moment is that my relationship with Jesus and my understanding of His character and person would stir my affections for him. That it wouldn't simply be a compiling of information that I can stand on a stage and spout out, but I could stand and spout on a stage the affection that I feel for a God of the universe as rivaled by nothing. And from that moment in my faith journey to where I stand now, there has been one question that time and time and time again, as I've studied scriptures, as I've looked at biblical characters, as I've walked through this journey, and as I've tried to answer it, has been pressed in over and over and over again. And so what I want to do this morning for us is unpack one question. Now, I'll be honest with you up front, I'm a preacher, so it's going to take a while for us to get to the one question. But I want to unpack some stuff for us as we walk through. So if you have your Bible, I'll give you a heads up. We're going to be flipping all over the place, so get your flipping fingers ready. Um, and the, the verses will be up on the screen. We're going to start in Psalm chapter 42. In Psalm chapter 42, starting in verse 1, David says these words. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, if you're like me and you've spent any time in and around church or around the Christian faith or in Christian bookstores or anything like that, you have heard this scripture. It's everywhere. It's on coffee mugs. It's on magnets. It's on every year's new Christian calendar, living right in 2020. It's on all of those places. And the picture is almost always the same. It's a deer standing in this beautiful meadow with mist rising up with a stream running beside it. And it's a beautiful buck that's standing there. And while I think that there's some incredible value to the imagery that we have given this passage of Scripture, I want to be very careful. And I want to encourage you this week to continue to read through David's words in Psalm 42. Because Psalm 42, while it's incredibly beautiful and incredibly descriptive, what this passage actually is is the beginning of David pleading with his own soul to find hope in Christ and in Christ alone. That yes, it's beautiful, and yes, it paints a beautiful picture, but this is a desperate plea from a man whose life cycles toward God and away from God, who's saying, God, why do I continue to wander? Remind me who you are. 
that this incredibly poetic and affectionate language David pours out onto Jesus. Not so that it will fit on a coffee mug, but so that he might be able to get his heart to align with what he knows he needs to desire. And David's going to continue if you turn just a few pages over in Psalm chapter 63. Starting in verse 1, David says this, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as, long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Now, if you study Scripture, you're going to see that there's a variety of ways throughout Scripture that various people are going to interact with God. If you study the prophet Isaiah, you're going to see that he catches just a glimmer of the glory of God, and his response will put into the category of reverence. He falls on his face in the dirt and says, woe is me. That as he looks at the glory of God, he sees his own depravity that separates him from God. And then there's another group of people, specifically you can look at it and see this in the 12 disciples, where people like Peter are almost going to talk with God and converse with God in a friendship level, in the same way that you would talk with a trusted friend who helps to counsel you and advise you. But then I would say that these two passages that we've looked at here fit into their own category altogether. And it's hard for us to categorize because we don't talk this way. Here's what I mean. My best buddy, I talked to him yesterday, and he called me, and we do a lot of duck hunting and that kind of stuff together. He called me yesterday, and in our entire relationship, I can tell you what's not happened, okay? He has never one time called me first thing in the morning, and I said, man, it is good to hear your voice. Last night, before I went to sleep, I laid in the bed and just remembered all of the duck hunting times that we had. And man, I meditated on that day and night, and I've been longing since that moment to just be with you again, right? Like, that's never happened. And if it does happen, I promise you, my buddy's going to hang up on me, and we might not be buddies again. But this is the language that we see, and David pours out, this is on the edge of, this is Valentine's Day stuff that we can take notes on. And David pins these words and points these words at the God of the universe that here is the affection that I feel for you. It's rivaled by nothing. That I would give everything to have just a glimmer of you. But this isn't just an Old Testament line of thought. If you flip over to Philippians chapter 3, Paul is going to write these words, starting in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now Paul says something incredibly interesting in verse 8 there. He says, indeed I count everything. Now if you go and you study the Greek word everything, it translates over to everything. Now I want to back up for a second. I want to unpack for you who Paul is if you don't know. Before his conversion to Christianity, Paul is a man who would have had everything that the world would consider successful. He was an elite, educated, religious ruler who in this culture, in this community, gave him an unbelievable amount of power, wealth, sway, political influence, anything else that you can think of that we would define as a successful life. But then Paul pins these words in Philippians, I count everything, fame, money, power, sway, everything as trash when it's compared to you. That none of those things that we'll spend our entire life pursuing as ultimate mean anything when compared to just a glimmer of who you are. So we see this in the New Testament. But then I'm going to walk forward. I'm going to quote some people here who have been incredibly influential Christian leaders throughout the Christian faith. And I'm going to show you that this line of thinking continues. Martin Luther, one of the fathers of the Reformation, says this. Oh, I wish to devote my mouth and my heart to you. Do not forsake me. For if I should, for if I should be on my own, I would easily wreck it all. Charles Spurgeon says this. I thank thee that this, which is a necessity of my new life, is also its greatest delight. So I do at this hour feast on thee. John Owen says this, Oh, to behold the glory of Christ, herein would I live, herein would I die, herein would I dwell in my thoughts and affections, until all things below become unto me a dead and deformed thing, no way suitable for affectionate embraces. And then my favorite one, and to be honest, I don't know what to do with this one, but Brother Lawrence, a 16th century monk, would write this. I have at times had such delicious thoughts on the Lord, I am ashamed to mention them. Like, I don't know, I don't know what to do with that. Like, you read that and I feel like I need to go wash my face, right? Like, I don't, delicious. Maybe if we had to put, if we had to put a sermon title on the website, can we make it delicious? Um, but we see throughout human history, throughout biblical history, this common thread. These men who are devoted, who have given all of their attention, all of their affection, just like the song that we just sing, we have poured it all out on the feet of Jesus, and to put it anywhere else is to waste it. But then if you flip over to Romans chapter 8, you're going to see that this line of thinking gets even more incredible because Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 19, says this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So even creation, the rocks will cry out their affection for Jesus. The trees sway and snap in the wind, moaning, longing for a moment to get back to what somehow intrinsically inside them they feel they were created to walk in in Genesis chapter 1. That the antelope longs for the day that it no longer runs from the lion, that it longs for the restoration that Jesus has begun. That every moment we pray, creation looks on and says, is this the moment he comes back? Is it done? Are we going to be restored to being in right standing with the God of the universe? This is our central desire. And I've spent this entire morning to this point walking us through the fact that creation, biblical characters, Christian history, have all been marked by people and things who cry out this way. And I want to make this statement before I ask the question. Understanding that reality, we understand that there is freedom found in affection for Christ. I want you to think about the Apostle Paul. And he's, he's probably, I don't know if you could say this, but I will. He is probably my favorite character in the entire Bible. And one of the reasons for that is because I don't think there's anyone who's ever lived in the history of humanity that is a more difficult guy to be an enemy with. And here's what I mean. You cannot like him, but here's what they do. They're like, we don't like him. We'll kill him. To die is gain. We'll let you live. To live is Christ. Let's do this. We'll let you get shipwrecked. We'll beat you to within inches of your life. I count this suffering as nothing compared to the glory of Christ that I will see. What do you do to him? Like, what do you do to that guy? We'll beat him. Okay. We'll shipwreck him. Okay, we'll kill him. Awesome. And David and Paul and these, these uh, figures from Christian history have built their entire life in the freedom that's found on giving their supreme affection to Jesus and to Jesus alone. So the question that we spent all morning getting ready to ask is this. If creation, and Christian figures, and biblical characters are marked by this level of affection and adoration for the God of the universe made manifest in the man named Jesus who would die on the cross. Why aren't I? And I made this question an I question for a couple of reasons. The first is because, again, this is for the past several years in my faith journey, the question that God has pressed and grinded into my heart time and time and time again. Rick, are you trusting circumstances? Is your affection in your circumstances? Is your affection in where you are? Is your affection in anything of this world or is it in me? So it's an internal battle for me. But I also made it an I question because I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit, not through my voice or my prompting, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. He will give you the ability this morning to ask this question of yourself. To examine your own heart, to be willing to step outside of yourself and look back in and go, where is my hope? Where is my focus? Where is my love? Where is my affection poured out on? 
Then I'm going to, as we close this morning quickly, look at two possible things that may cause us to answer this question, why aren't we? The first is that we focus on the wrong things. Flip over to Ezekiel. Uh, I'll give you a second because I know that's not a popular one. You might have to go table of contents to get there. Be happy I had Habakkuk 3 in here and nobody knows where Habakkuk is. So rock and roll, we'll get to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 14, something really interesting happens. And I'll kind of start to read and unpack what's going on here. Ezekiel chapter 14, starting in verse 1, says, Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel speaking. He is a prophet. So by and large, the Old Testament works this way. Israel would go and need guidance from God. God didn't always show up in a burning bush or show up to the entire nation. But he would show up to prophets. And he would speak to them. And then the prophets would communicate with Israel what they needed to do. And so these leaders have come to Ezekiel and said, Ezekiel, we don't know where to go. We don't know what God has for us. We need guidance and direction. Will you ask him what we need to do, where we need to go? And then we're going to get God's response, starting in verse 3, to Ezekiel's coming to him. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? If you spent any time looking at the Old Testament, you know that Israel has a compulsive idol problem. But this one sets up a little bit differently because Ezekiel is going to say they have taken idols into their heart. That this isn't worshiping a golden calf. This is something, a much deeper issue. And we'll continue to unpack that again. But I want to continue to look at God's answer in verse 4. Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes to me with a multitude of his idols that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. So here's what God says in response to Ezekiel and Israel seeking him. If you come to me holding to your idol, the only guidance that I'm going to show you is your idol. The only thing that I will put before your face is your idol. Now I want to be careful here. I'm trying to break this down for a second because I think Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom has done a little bit of a disservice to how we view and think about idols. And so I want to define idols this way. Idols are things in our life that simply start as a desire. And there's nothing inherently wrong with them. It can be money. It can be family. It can be the safety of your family. It can be the American dream. And so you have that desire placed in your hand. And that desire, there's nothing wrong with it. Listen, there's nothing wrong with being rich. There's nothing wrong with having a white picket fence home. There's nothing wrong with having a huge family. There's nothing wrong with your family being healthy. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. The issue becomes, and an idol begins to become an idol, when you start to close your hand around that desire. And then you look at God and say, touch anything you want to over here, but leave this alone. You can have everything Kind of. I surrender all, at least most of it. And the problem in that lies in, when we do that to God, what we turn God into is not the all-powerful creator of the universe who loves and walks with us, but we turn him into a cosmic waiter. Who we say, you can take the things that I want you to take when I'm ready for you to take them, and you can bring me the things that I want when I'm ready for you to bring them to me. 
And all the while, God's going, hey, that financial stuff that you've closed your hand around, if, you're open, if you'll open your hand, I will bless you immeasurably more than you could ever begin to comp- comprehend. I'm not saying that you're going to be rich and wealthy, but I'm saying that God's going to do something that's so much bigger than the amount of money in your bank account. And if you would let your hand off of your family, you might see that I have a plan and a purpose for each of their lives and a direction for them to walk in. And so my fear is that we don't feel this level of affection that we see described throughout history of Christianity because we won't let go of the stuff that we hold on to as supreme over God. We trust, we hope in the wrong things. We focus on the wrong things. And the second thing that we do is we trust in the wrong things. Galatians chapter 3, Paul, who we spent some time looking at this morning, says this, starting in verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So Paul asked this question, and it's very, very easy to apply this question to the world. What are you trusting in for your meaning in your life? But I want to be very careful when we will apply it to the world. But I want to be very careful to be faithful to the text and realize that Paul wrote this passage of Scripture to a church. Because you see the church, if you study the New Testament, most of Paul's letters are churches that he plants and then he has to write back to because they screwed something up. And he's trying to get them to line back up with what their vision and mission was when it was planted, when it was started, when they got going. He's saying, no, 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 no. Do this. Focus on this. And so this, this passage is essentially for church people, but I'll make an apology before this because here's what's happened and here's how the church has wandered away now. That in the mega church era that we live in right now of Christian faith, especially Christian faith in America, pastors like myself have stood up on stages and have abandoned the radical, offensive, incredibly beautiful, gracious picture of the gospel to try to preach a message that makes you feel good about you so that you will affirm me and my gift up here. And for that, the church, global church, owes you as a follower of Jesus an apology. Sorry that we've trusted things other than we've trusted things other than the gospel to save you. But then it also applies to the church people. Listen, we have an incredible strategy, and we spend a lot of time getting ready for these worship services and, and pouring into these messages and those kind of things. But the second that our faith becomes about who has a microphone strapped on their face on Sunday morning or what five songs we pick. And that's what our hope is in. We're misguided. The purpose of the songs and the purpose of the message are all to get you to reflect on the goodness of God and then in seeing the goodness of God, get our hearts to more look like the hearts of the people we've looked at. And so if we abandon the message of the gospel to pick songs that we like, then we're a concert. So we trust the wrong things but then this also applies to the world and this is where we'll close so I don't go too long and never get to preach again the world around you or for the for some of you those of you who walked in here trusting the things of this world 
is hoping, trusting, and believing in the wrong things to give purpose and direction in life. And you don't have to watch Fox or CNN or CNBC or whatever you want to watch very long to realize the effect that that's had on the world that we live in. That this world, this culture, this community, and listen to me, even the Christian faith is right now more exhausted, more driven by consumerism, more what are you going to get me, more marked by anxiety than any culture in history up to this point. And the reality of what causes these things is that just like the church at Galatia, we've wandered away from the central message of this. There's a God of the universe who we all, the guy with the fancy mic strapped on his face included, have warred against, have declared war upon, who have chosen things other than him to provide satisfaction and fulfillment for our life. And his response to that was not what we deserve, which would be to kill all of us and start over. His response to that was the song that we just sang, was to step out of heaven, to step into earth, to live perfectly submitted to the will of God for his entire life, and at the end of that, get the reward of being killed on a cross so that he could be buried in a borrowed tomb so that he could be raised from the dead and that offer us hope. And that God says, here's where your affections should come. And the exchange that he offers is not some exchange for religious behavior. That is to find purpose and meaning and direction and substance for your life. That the freedom that we're looking for, the fulfillment that we're looking for, the meaning and purpose that we're looking for are not found where we're looking for it. But they're found in saying, I'll give everything away and my ultimate affections will be given to Jesus. And every blessing that I have in this life is simply an opportunity for me to be reminded of how incredibly beautiful he is. That every time I kiss my wife and hug my daughter, it doesn't have to end on my daughter or my wife, but that's an act of worship that rolls up into reminding me of the God who saved me. That every time I eat a steak, medium rare, that's the only way to eat a steak, I eat that steak and it can remind me that God put these flavors together and gave people the ability to cook it and put it in front of me and me pay for it and me enjoy it so that I can worship him. That all of my affection in everything terminates on the God of the universe who has given me everything. Will you pray with me? Jesus, this morning I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you that that I am a man, and this is a room full of people who have time and time and time again chosen anything other you, other than you for our hope and our meaning and our purpose and our direction in life. God, and the result of that is that there's people in this room this morning who are exhausted. There are people in this room this morning who came in here tired and right on the edge of hopeless. So God, my prayer for them this morning is that they will see your saving grace. God, that your response is not an angry father who wants us to clean up and recognize the mistakes that we've made before we can approach you 
that you're a God who simply says, come home. That the beauty of your glory is what causes us to change. God, but I pray for those of us in this room as well. We have put our faith in you, we have put our hope in you, God, at some point in our past, 10, 15, one year ago. God, and have wandered away from that, have trusted things since that moment other than you. God, and the result is we've come back to church to start a new year, hoping that we can rekindle what we once knew, your grace and your mercy that provides purpose and fulfillment for our life. God, may you remind us again of your work on the cross. God, may we live our lives passionately abandoned, recklessly giving everything that we have for our affection for you to impact the world around us. God, that this world wouldn't see Cedar Creek or Rick Lee or Philip Lee or Danny Wilson as something worth coming to and following, but this world would see that Jesus is worth following and that he fills this place. And that it's not just those people that I named, but all of us who carry that message with our entire affection. We love you, King Jesus. Thank you for saving us. I ask you to save those of us in here this morning that need it. It's in your name we pray. Amen.